1: hi and welcome to an episode of beyond the balance sheet podcast i'm very excited about today's guest haley moss is an attorney an advocate and a thought leader she is the author of books she is the speaker to companies and predominantly she is noted in her youtube presence as the openly autistic lawyer in florida the first i believe so I think she's a whole lot more than that. So let's talk about what the pressure to be perfect is when you are neurodiverse. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to hear about your experience. Why, let me start with a question. Why did you decide to make the decision to come to the public as an outed as they would say, neurodiverse attorney? That is a great
0: question. So I don't feel like I was outed as an attorney per se, I had been involved in disability advocacy actually, since I was a teenager. And I had spoken at my first conference on the subject when I was 13. And I Mm. didn't plan on really telling a bunch of people outside of who I knew. So my doctors, my healthcare team, my family, obviously, who knew my whole life, pretty much, my teachers, prospective employers, prospective romantic partners, like kind of this need to know basis thing was what my life plan originally was. But I really did enjoy using my voice for the greater good. And when I did write my first book as a teenager, it kind of became this, well, you know, I want to help other people, I want to do something good, and I put my name on it. So it was already out there in the public sphere. Once I did end up going to law school and into the legal field it's that it took on a life of its own when it came with that moniker of being Florida's first openly autistic attorney because i was always very open about my autism it's just that it meant something different especially being in a profession where lawyers with disabilities are historically very underrepresented compared to the general population and even as far as people with disabilities go So it really was a great way to open this conversation and to help bring much needed change.
1: I love that you have done this and it, as you were talking, I really started to question, you know, when we get a diagnosis of anything, whether that is a neurodiversity or a mental health issue, or even a physical issue, our first, our first issue is sort of privacy. Who gets to know this? As Mm -hmm. if it's something shameful, right?
0: Yeah, not even if it's just something shameful, but more of there's this kind of mental gymnastics that you have to do as a person with a disability of how, when, if and why you should disclose if you choose to do so because you're accounting for your knowledge of the condition how other people are going to perceive you how other people are going to react and how that can either work for or against you in a different situation or context so i always like to say it's more of a mental gymnastics more so than a shame that might be an internal reason why somebody doesn't ever feel comfortable sharing and that's totally valid in their journey that's not where i come from it's more of that oh my gosh, when I say this, how is somebody going to treat me? How are they going to react? What questions are they going to have? Or are they going to somehow perceive me as less deserving, less human, or somehow discount the things that I have done because of a disability or thinking I got a free pass in life somehow, which is far from the truth.
1: Far, far from it. So you mentioned that you started talking about this at 13. Mm -hmm. How did your family react? What was your upbringing like? Just give me a little nugget.
0: I am an only child. I Mm -hmm. have the most supportive, kind, and fierce advocates in parents. That my parents are very happily married. They are best friends. They are my favorite people in the whole world. And I know that sounds really kind of geeky to say about your family, but it's true. So I had a very happy childhood. I had lots of hobbies, things I enjoyed. I, of course, was the only kid. So I got to spend lots of time with adults, which I thought was pretty typical, but apparently is not for a lot of people. And my parents, because I was diagnosed at an early age, really made sure to go all out and making sure that I had access to different services and different interventions and whatnot. And my mom also would repeat and work on a lot of that stuff when I was home. So my parents really did sacrifice so much and give so much of themselves in order to make me who I am and to make sure that I had every possible opportunity available to me. They also never looked at my autism as something to be ashamed of or something shameful, even though people had acted negatively towards them, that I grew up thinking I was really cool and everyone else was really weird, which may or may not have been true. And the way that my parents even told me about my own autism was comparing it to the Harry Potter series, which I was absolutely obsessed with at age nine and how different was neither better nor worse. It's just different and different could be extraordinary. So I grew up with this very happy, uplifting upbringing, and my parents are still my biggest cheerleaders and supporters and will advocate with me as they and I see fit. I thankfully am fairly independent at this point in my life and feel pretty independent but I do know that I always have a safety net and folks in my corner in my family if I need them. So I have nothing but love and I'm just extremely grateful and I hope to continue making them proud. And if you're listening, hi, mom and dad.
1: I'll bet they are listening just because of the way you just described them. Even, you know, they might even be watching you, I'll bet. So I read a book called The Young Autistic Adults' Independence Handbook, which was written by you. And one of the things that struck me was the comment you made about the myth of independence. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a minute about the myth of independence and how it is helpful for people with disabilities or other struggles in life to have supports?
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought that up since usually I don't get to talk so much about what independence is or is not. But the biggest myth that I had ever been sold in my life about independence was that it is synonymous with do it all yourself. Essentially that independence means exactly that you are the sole decision maker, that you're the one doing everything and that if you need help or something, I at least internalize this as some sort of failure or that if I needed additional support in something that seemed very obvious that my peers didn't, that somehow I had failed at life. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but that's how I felt when I was in college. The first time I did laundry by myself and couldn't have told you which one was the washer and which one was the dryer, because it wasn't the same setup as the washing machine and dryer at my parents' house. So kind of a weird way to look at it, but I really thought, like, Oh my God, I'm not cut out to do this. I'm never going to be independent. But what I had learned and what I've especially learned from the disability community is that independence sometimes is being vulnerable, it is asking for help. And instead of looking at independence as you must do everything by yourself, sometimes it is that joint decision-making or even the fact that as a society, we're actually very interdependent, that every single one of us has things that we give the community and things that we take from the community. It's impossible for every single one of us to do everything by ourselves Think of how many of us will call somebody or some kind of repair person if we have a broken appliance in our house or if you live in Florida like me and your AC goes out. I'm not equipped to fix my AC unit. Think of how many of you may have an accountant or other tax professional helping you when tax season comes around. It doesn't mean that you're a failure because you can't do that. Just sometimes people with disabilities need different support in their daily life or these major tasks than a non-disabled person might. And that is just part of the human experience.
1: That is. I would even posit that the ability to ask for help is a hallmark of adulthood and of healthy functioning, not just for people with disabilities or neurodivergence, but for all of us.
0: Yeah. And asking for help is one of the hardest things I think we can do. And I do believe there is stigma attached to asking for help in certain situations more so than others.
1: So you also mentioned that having autism is like speaking a second language. Can you describe that experience for us?
0: Sure, and if you are a second language learner, you might have a different experience with this. I am not a second language learner. It's just the best analogy that I've got sometimes and the most relatable version of the experience of being autistic that I can give. So please bear with me. Imagine that you are in a place that speaks a different language than your first language is, at least socially. And most people speak the second language and you have done your absolute best to learn it you can get around pretty well, you can still have some conversations, you're pretty well assimilated. But no matter where you are, somebody knows that's not your first language. Perhaps you have an accent, perhaps you trip over your words now and then, or there's a turn of phrase that you don't quite understand. However, usually with actual second language learners, we're a lot kinder when this happens, right? Like we kind of recognize that there is a slight difference, something that sounds a little bit off, and we kind of go from there. And sometimes we are interested and intrigued by that. And we learn a couple of words in their first language or a couple of handy phrases in order to survive. However, when you are autistic or you're neurodivergent, you have to assimilate in that second language and you have to do it exceptionally well. And when you do miss that turn of the phrase, or you have an accent or you somehow get something wrong, people are very quick to judge and are extremely harsh for it. It is the equivalent, I suppose, in some circles of, well, why don't you just speak English that I know a lot of folks who English isn't their first language might hear when rather I wish we heard more of, I'm sorry that I don't speak better X. So that's always how I like to look at it because it does socially have that same kind of confusion and exhaustion. And sometimes you just want to think and speak the way that feels most natural to you, and to be able to fully be yourself without having to think about assimilating in order to avoid being bullied or discriminated against or treated with the same respect as anybody else.
1: And has that sense that you wanted to be treated like anybody else and should be treated like anybody else, part of what propelled you to go to law school? What propelled Uh, you to take? Law as your vocation,
0: I wanted to go to law school because I realized I was not going to be a physician (laughs) and I thought being a physician would be the best way to give back and the best way to be able to understand people in the human brain was to understand the science of it. I realized very quickly I was not excited about the sciences and I had to think about the things I actually did enjoy, which were writing, researching, talking and still helping people. And I very quickly had figured out that's what lawyers did and that's why I wanted to go to law school. I thought that I was going to be a disability rights attorney. I was not a disability rights attorney and did not become one because I worked in it very briefly during one of my summer internships. And I had the problem that most people would have been surprised to know that I had. The problem that I had with working in disability rights is I felt too empathetic towards the people I was representing and working with in the fact that they could have been anyone that I knew, not that much separated me from them and all of that. So I would come home constantly thinking about the folks that I was working with to the point that it could have became unhealthy and I wanted to have a healthy work-life balance, as most people say that they want to have. So I decided I needed to have an area of law when I was in practice that was able to separate my life from my clients and what they were working on and what they were experiencing. So I mostly worked in healthcare litigation representing hospitals because corporations are very different than actual human beings and corporations do not have epileptic seizures or medical emergencies or other life-altering events after 5 p.m. or ever really, they're corporations.
1: That's right. And by and large, you don't have to worry that every second that you are working is costing them something personal. Mm -hmm. In a financial way, right? Yeah, not even just the
0: financial aspect of it, but I tell a story every so often about a girl who I worked on her case and she was being evicted from her apartment. And I would think about, is she okay? How is she doing? On top of the fact she had other complex medical conditions that would of course be exacerbated by her very stressful situation that I was always thinking about her. I was like, is she okay? How is she feeling? Is she having a flare up of sorts? Like I would always be thinking about this young woman. She was maybe only a couple of years older than me at the time too. And it's been years and I still think of her now and then. And that is the main reason I couldn't imagine having a caseload with 10 girls like that or 10 people like that or 20 or 50 it's just not healthy for me. And I have nothing but respect for the folks who do that work. I could not imagine doing it every day, all day. So I salute the disability rights attorneys who are fighting the good fight.
1: So you, you clearly applaud the disability rights attorneys out there fighting the good fight. What I wanna make sure of is that from a listener's point of view and as an interviewer's part, point of view, I see you as fighting the good fight in a very different way. What would you say that fight looks like for you?
0: I'm really glad that you said that because I feel very similarly that I'm just fighting the same fight, but in a different strategy. So I, I look at it as that what I do is mostly education, which means that folks are more aware of their rights, more understanding of one another. They have the tools to be more empathetic to be kinder and really invested in making the future more accessible for people with disabilities. I feel like saying it's a kindness is actually doing it a disservice because we, you should be kind to people no matter what, but really that you are invested and care about access and inclusion, not just as this moral imperative, but this actual thing that doesn't just benefit one group of people, but benefits everybody. So I like to look at it as education is the most powerful tool in our toolbox for the people, not just who has access to something like law school or, something available to them at their job or their educational background. That I like to look at the way that I do education is it is something that is approachable and fun and impactful no matter who you are, whether you are someone who is brand new to learning about disability and neurodiversity, whether you are neurodivergent or disabled yourself, you're a family member, you're curious, or you're just kind of along for the ride that hopefully there's something for everybody in what I'm doing and something you can take away into your life and make things better for the folks around you.
1: I think if we can understand as a population, as parents, as individuals, a huge portion of our population and have better conversations about what is it like to be you? I think you have done an amazing job.
0: Thank you. And I like that idea is having more conversations with folks about what does it mean to be you? Because I will never, to my knowledge, get the opportunity to to know what it's like to be somebody else or even a different version of myself. So there's so much that I don't understand about the human experience or somebody else's experience. Even with the same disability as me, I know plenty of autistic people who have very, very different experiences. So what is it like to be you, I think is truly the question to be asking if somebody feels comfortable enough to answer it and if they choose not to for whatever the reason, that's okay. But we also get snippets of what it's like to be somebody else when they say, you know, I'm really tired or this place is too loud for me. Or do you ever have this thing happen or is it just me? That we get little snippets of people's life experience and what it means to be them on a daily basis without just a backstory. We just have to really be on the lookout for it.
1: Mm-hmm. But I do want to go back to that word of kinder, too. I think as a people, we could be kinder to difference. And we could see that individual who who might be having a momentary struggle on the sidewalk and be able to say, maybe I can be of help. Maybe I can talk. I know I'm Mm -hmm. painting a sort of a pie in the sky vision but i do think that if we have more of these difficult conversations Mm -hmm. about what somebody's internal experience is in this world Mm -hmm. we would be able to have better connection and better connection equals what better relationships better everything better everything better
0: better ways that we connect and hopefully better solutions to issues and problems that we have or don't know that we have I don't think it's too idealistic. I do think that perhaps it might be idealistic to approach a stranger on the street, but I do think that there has to be a couple reasonable safeguards in there, such as safety and privacy and things like that. That's kind of a whole neither here nor there going deeper into the weeds of it. Because I know if I'm having a difficult day in public, sometimes I think I'd feel pretty strange if somebody stopped me to ask how I'm doing, even though I think I would, but I would appreciate that if it came from somebody I knew who, so wrapped up in their own world sometimes that they forget that someone that they know and love and care about might be having a very different experience. So I think right. there has to be a couple of safeguards and boundaries and things to be
1: thinking about because
0: I know I a lot of times
1: right. It was an, it, now that I'm listening, I'm like, God, what an idiotic <laughs> idea, Diana. It really was. It's not idiotic at I all. But I do see people sometimes, and I want to just pause and just say. I know you don't know me and I know it, it looks like a really hard moment, but I want you to remember it's a moment.
0: Yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I usually want to do the best I can by people. And sometimes just not doing anything instead of just stopping and staring is something because I know that sometimes in people's worst moments, they do things in public or that they say things they don't mean and just being non-judgmental. I think is one of the kindest things that we can do. I used to say for a long time that when I would disclose my autism to people, my favorite people were the ones who literally didn't care. That of course I want people to care because this is a huge part of me and who I am, but some of the best people were the ones who didn't care because it didn't mean anything to them. And they just treated me the same as they always did. It's still the same person I always have been, but I think there's a very fine line of nuance between I don't care because you're you or I don't, and I don't see this because it's not my experience therefore, or it's not real to me because you're still you. Because I've had friends that I will explain some very disability specific struggle and they'll go, well, you're still Haley. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm looking for here. I want you to validate that this thing is actually really hard for me and tell me that this sucks in this moment because sometimes it does. It's not always sunshine and rainbows. I want that acceptance, but there are things in my life that are still extremely difficult And if i'm like hey this thing is difficult i want you to be able to sit there with me in that moment and acknowledge that it's difficult or come up with a way to hopefully make it less difficult than be like well you're still you or you're just you that's how it is like
1: i don't know if that's really what we're going for no i hear that i can hear that it would be helpful to hear that was brave walking into that cafeteria it was brave Mm -hmm. not being able to walk in up onto that stage and not know what people were thinking. It must be exhausting to walk through and wonder what's the nuance I'm missing. That's what I Mm -hmm. think would be helpful to know, right? Exactly. And I think there's so
0: much that goes into that. And I really like that we're trying to explore that little bit of nuance here. Or sometimes that I can only imagine how that must sound to you because even though to me, it doesn't sound like that much, that must be really loud or just really jarring for you. So I say that about even some things like the sound that my washer dryer makes when it's done, that I find it very jarring despite having heard it many, many, many times. And then I'll have a friend who's over when the dryer's running and they'll go, oh my gosh, that!" I could see why you find that jarring. And then I'm like, yes, thank you. It's not just a bit of a bad joke of that my
1: washer dryer scares me. Right, right. It's validation. Mm-hmm. It is
0: is this just me, or is this a universal thing? And sometimes getting that slight bit of validation of it might be universal, or I can see how that isn't just some strange thing I've never heard or could have imagined before. That sometimes Mm -hmm. means a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned about the luxury of being average. What does that mean?
0: Oh, I love when people ask me this types of stuff, because I don't actually get to talk about this that much. but. People with disabilities are perceived, at least in my opinion, as being one of two things. You are perceived as somebody or some kind of object to be pitied and people feel bad for you. And somehow you're not going to amount to anything or you're not enough or that, you know, people just feel sorry for you for having the struggles that you do. On the complete flip side of that, there are those of us who have somehow made the most of this and have overcame, quote unquote, and succeeded despite disability, which really doesn't sit well with me because I don't think any success is despite of a disability. I think it's indeed because of it, because of how it shapes your existence and how your attitudes are and the things you've had to fight and work through, but I digress. But essentially what happens when you're perceived as being that successful, you're assimilating, kind of like that second language thing we spoke about to the point of exceptional, is that you are somehow superhuman, that you have transcended disability that there is no real middle ground of just being average, like you were saying, that luxury of being average, that you're either superhuman and exceptional, or you are somebody that people just feel bad for. There really is no safe middle ground. I hope that's not necessarily true, but that's often an experience that I've observed and have felt that way is that you don't get to be somewhere in the middle, especially when it comes to things like employment and other opportunities is that a lot of times I had to work that much harder and have more things to prove that I was competent for the same jobs and opportunities as my non-disabled peers. So I didn't feel like I had that luxury of being average.
1: Or probably having a low period or a bad week or all of those things that the people who profess to be average, though I don't know what that really is. um, Neither
0: do I, but, and you're held to a very different standard that the way that I like to explain this is imagine you are in the room of a teenage boy. Okay. And this teenage boy's room is extremely messy. What is that reaction? If this teenage boy has a disability, you are going to make this different reaction of, well, we're going to get him on a plan. We're going to reward him for keeping his room clean. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to have this whole, song and dance about how to make his room clean and that he is responsible for making that room clean. If this is a typical teenager, we might just say, it's a typical teenage boy with a messy room. That is just how it is. And mom is gonna yell at this kid to put his clothes in the hamper. Like that's a very different standard than this might be a behavioral issue and we're gonna have a plan with rewards and he's going to get to spend extra time playing video games if his room is clean. Like that's not the same standard despite the fact they're probably both two teenage boys with a messy room.
1: That's a great comment. And it goes back to the title of the pressure to be perfect. So if you have the standard imperfections of slovenliness, you might be on a behavior plan as opposed to just accept it, right? Yeah.
0: And I think that's absolutely wild because you don't get to just make mistakes and do things the way that most people get to. And I think about this, especially when I think of people with disabilities who are under guardianship or conservatorship. So I know this was something that comes up a lot when we talk about Britney Spears. And Britney Spears has had many questionable decisions made for her and that she has probably made herself. That I know that a lot of us have thought, okay, she's out of this conservatorship. She's making mistakes with her relationship because she's getting divorced. She wanted to, or maybe doesn't want to have a baby. I don't remember all the specifics or that she's showing explicit photos on the internet and people are like, oh my God, she should be having someone else rule her life again. And I'm like, she's not allowed to just make mistakes and do things on her own terms. Like most other people would just get to make mistakes. Plenty of people get divorced. Plenty of people have issues in their lives. Why is she being held to the standard of she has gotten out of this horrible situation and has to basically just be the paragon of virtue mm-hmm. and perfection and that everything is fine all the time. Of course, she's going to make mistakes. She's human. Mm-hmm. And I love- at least those are mistakes she can make on her own time. And I'm like, look, freeing her from this situation, because I did a lot of commentary and stuff on guardianships and conservatorships, I'm like, look, Freeing her means that she's free to screw up and do whatever she wants. If she wants to make her own bad decisions, she can make them. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them or you have to agree with them, but she should have the right to make whatever bad decision she wants. We all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions. Just like the rest of us, right? Yes. Every single one of us has probably made at least one decision in life that we completely regret, whether it's where we went to school, who we dated, what we did on a Friday night. We've all made decisions that we don't agree with if we look back or that we're objectively just bad decisions. Just some of us are right. punished for them in ways that we shouldn't be. And perhaps for the rest of our lives. And this is not a commentary whatsoever on criminal behavior or criminal justice. This is not a political statement. It's more of just a, there's a huge double standard at play when it comes to decisions, mistakes, and essentially the right to be an adult is on, as a person with a disability and adults make mistakes. Adults do things that aren't always perfect. That might not be in their best interest. That might not be in their family's best interest. But every single one of us should have that right to grow up, to make mistakes, to do what we can and hopefully learn from them, you know? Instead of just being assume that sure. you have to be perfect in this, oh, you're a teenager with a messy room. Or I think of this a lot when I saw the similar situation to the behavior plan that we talked about with adults as well, is that like, so-and-so had a bad day. They threw an object at the wall. Okay. Yeah. He had a bad day. He was venting his frustration. And right. if you have someone with an intellectual or mental health disability, it's that they are lashing out. They are being defiant. They are doing all this other stuff. Behavior plan comes right back out of how to make them stop throwing objects at the wall. Not the, you know, the same person might've also just had a bad day and they're venting and letting out their frustration.
1: Agreed. The being you of you. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you, Haley Moss for joining me today And your vividness and your enthusiasm for the subject. What a lively, wonderful conversation. For those of you who listened on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast, please like us on your platform of choice.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more
1: about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.